One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the Acast site, mine website, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz or at Banking Day. For the most exclusive access to leading economists and business leaders from around the world, subscribe to Talking Business from our website, leongetler.com. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number four in our series for 2024, and today's date is Friday, February the 23rd. First, I'll be talking to Matt Vitali, co-founder and CEO of Birchall, Australia's leading equity crowdsource funding platform, which has just released its equity crowdsource funding industry report. And I'm talking to Indeed economist Callum Pickering about the latest unemployment figures. But first, let's talk to Matt Vitali. Matt, uh, what did your report show about crowdsource funding? Stability and resilience in some pretty challenging times for fundraising, particularly for early stage businesses. But pleasingly, what we do is still relatively new in Australia. And we've shown that it is an increasingly reliable and increasingly popular way for early stage businesses to build communities and raise capital online. And that would be great for startups, wouldn't it? Indeed. But I think as we've seen, it's broader than just startups and innovative businesses. There's been early stage businesses and all small businesses. I suppose we have a vision that all offers should be crowdsourced funding offers and that this is a very practical way that uh, entrepreneurialism can be supported and, and, and fueled in Australia. Particularly with the banks clamping down. Absolutely. And equity capital is uh, typically the hardest piece of the capital stack to solve. And you know, for early stage businesses, like they don't even have, you know, debt and a lot of these other things available to them. So they're using financial products that aren't appropriate for what they're doing where, you know, but you do what you have to do. You max out credit cards, you remortgage the house, you do all of these things. But the revelation has been that early stage businesses can raise equity capital, something that has historically been only the domain of, um, of large, typically listed businesses. These are small businesses that are making public offers of securities. And this would be particularly acute in a place like Australia where venture capital is not that active compared, you know, I mean, they're active in things like mining, for example, but not that active in other sectors. I think that's right. And notwithstanding that the progress of Australia's uh, tech and innovation scene, particularly over the last 10 years, has been uh, phenomenal. Often, you know, we compare ourselves to some of the, the, the larger ecosystems and, and particularly the states, mm. but it's the largest pool of venture capital on the planet. And 
there is money that just needs to be put to work and it finds these um, venture opportunities. Uh, but in Australia, we just, we don't have that mindset. We're not set up in that way, but uh, equity crowdfunding is a great way to unlock a larger investment universe. And I think increasingly people that are investing in other asset classes, um, they don't quite know how to get exposure to early stage venture type investors, uh, investments, and you know they might not go to a startup event or an angel investment pitch night. They're not plugged into the ecosystem, um, but that's okay because what we're able to do is enable companies to open their opportunities to a national audience of investors and find their crowd, find the community to uh, support them. Who would be the main recipients? of this crowdsource funding? Who are the most popular? What are the most popular industries? That's a great question. And this is something that, you know, was borne out in 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 the report and that the, the, the report showed is that food and beverage was another um, another strong year. Another year is, is the leading um, category for crowdsource funding. And I think that there's a few reasons for that. Another interesting dynamic that we saw last year is, you know, craft brewers. The craft beer industry has been... Uh, historically uh, pretty active and achieved a lot of success with crowdsource funding. Uh, these are businesses that people can understand, that a large audience of people can understand. They're often businesses that people want to be associated with. I think for food and beverage, consumer packaged goods businesses, um, these markets uh, can be very noisy and it's hard to differentiate. And what people have found is a really good way to do that is to source your capital from your customers who already know about your product, they can understand your business, you know, they're validating your business and what you're doing in a product sense as a customer. But for the businesses, it's not just the capital, but they're building a direct connection with, you know, often their most passionate customers by involving them in the business. But that's the low hanging fruit for us, I think. You know, our goal as an industry and as a platform is to expand the footprint for crowdsource funding because it works incredibly well for the things that we're really strong at. But we're five years into this industry now, and as a piece of legislation, it's incredibly flexible and there's a lot of value to add to other industries. And that we have been active in other industries, but we want to be more successful. So um, other you know, innovative type industries uh, are finding success with crowdsource funding. Later stage businesses that are perhaps approaching an IPO have found success on our platform. You know, There's a lot more that we can be doing and a, a lot more value to add. I noticed that your report says that healthcare is a growing sector. That's interesting. It's because because um, sooner or later, mature investors will need to access healthcare. So they're going in for healthcare products. Absolutely. And last year, it was predominantly medicinal cannabis businesses in healthcare. And we've observed that uh, there are a lot of thematic investors that are incredibly passionate about uh, medicinal cannabis and other alternative medicines that um, I think it's a good thing that, you know, there is this focus, you know, on, on, on these types of alternatives for people now. I think this year we will start to see that expand to businesses that are um, in the psychedelics space. Uh, the recent downscheduling of psilocybin and MDMA for treatment resistant depression and PTSD and 
um, news, recent news of the first administration of these therapies to people in a clinical setting, um, a world first, I might add. It's a really exciting time for what I think will become a, a very uh, big industry over the years, but certainly there is a lot of interest. People are interested in these things. And I think given the opportunity to support them with capital and be a part of their journey, it is something that certainly we've seen has been strong in the medicinal cannabis and we expect it to continue to psychedelics and others. What about sustainability? Another really strong category. So what I mentioned of you know consumer packaged goods and food and beverage businesses, the you know, is is often I think what people get preoccupied by in terms of what we're strong at is you know, often founders will say to us, I'm not a B2C business. I don't have a product or service to an end consumer. So maybe this is not for me. But what we're seeing in the sustainability space is actually it's broader than that customer connection. It definitely gives a company a head start in terms of understanding what the natural audience for their offer will be. But it's actually more about storytelling. Is what you are doing interesting to a large group of people such that they want to support you and be part of your journey? And that's been, I think, a real strength for the sustainability category. So we've completed successful offers for you know companies like Seabin and uh, Zero Coast. Seabin's a good example. They make a bin that sits in the water that collect waste plastic, but it's essentially public infrastructure. You or I would never buy Seabin. It's like buying a streetlight. You know, it's kind of pointless. But people care about cleaning up the world's oceans, and this is an amazing way for companies like that to tell their story, build a community and raise capital. What about the growth of uh, Australia's tech industry? I mean, does that rate at all? It, it does, but it's one of the areas that I think there's more that we could be doing and there's more that we want to do. And I think because the tech industry, there are investors that are active in this that space already uh, that, you know, it takes time to change some of these normative practices and I think we can add and be a, a very strong complement to uh, that industry but it's probably one of the areas that there are already people looking at these opportunities and um, and supporting them so the challenge and opportunity for us as a platform is how can we work collaboratively with tech and innovation investors to really kind of you know add firepower to um, these innovative tech companies could I just make a suggestion that uh, the uh, the tech people and um, your firm need to actually embark on educating people about their technology because I think there's a lot of I mean you have a lot of followers of technology but they're a very small part of the population mm -hmm. and if you get more people in uh, you'll have more investors I think I, I completely agree and I, I think more than that it's it's the founders that are pursuing these um, endeavors that I am personally incredibly inspired by. And that's always my recommendation to founders is like, tell your, your story because people invest in people. And this is what I think we're really good at and is helping people to tell their stories and find their audience. But when I'm explaining to others that are in the tech ecosystem that perhaps have these preconceived notions of what equity crowdfunding is, a way that I can explain what we do to them in a, in a relevant way is, you know, highlight a really inspiring founder and say, wouldn't you love to back that person and invest in their business? Well, currently 
you know, the only way you can do that is through an intermediary like a venture capital fund that you need to be a wholesale investor typically to, you know, invest through that. But if that founder had an opportunity on our platform, anyone in Australia would be able to invest up to $10,000 and, um, and support them. And there are amazingly inspiring stories from this industry that we need to tell more people. So I'm with you. We need to educate. Now, one last question. What's the minimum a person can invest? The most popular uh, minimum parcel size is $250. So um, it's quite low. And we'll, uh, some, some companies go lower than that, but certainly that's the most popular minimum parcel size. And it's important to talk about that because angel investment typically without crowdsource funding, you know, minimum investment sizes for these types of opportunities are, you know, in the tens of thousands of dollars. And like any investment, um, you need to be diversified. It is a risky asset class. Many of these things will not achieve the full extent of their ambition. But even in that, in a practical sense, being able to make smaller bets means it's far less expensive to achieve a you know, sufficiently diversified portfolio. And uh, I think it's an underappreciated benefit of what we do is that if there are enough quality companies that are operating in this space, then you know it makes it far more accessible for people to have a sensible allocation that is diversified as part of their investment, getting access to innovative Australian companies. Well, Matt, we'll be watching very closely and thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Thank you. And now let's talk to Indeed economist Callum Pickering. Well, well Callum, unemployment has picked up slightly to 4.1% in January. What's your take on that? Well, it was a little bit of a surprising result. The labor market had obviously been easing somewhat. The unemployment rate had been trending upwards, but the, the jump was bigger than anticipated, certainly by the market and, and certainly by economists such as myself. Um, so it was a, a relatively uh, weak outcome, highlighted by the fact that employment jumped by only 500 people in the month. Um, which again was well short of market expectations. So overall, while the Australian lab market does remain very tight with the unemployment rate quite low by historical standards, uh, it was a somewhat disappointing set of labour market figures. Oh, it was a two-year high, wasn't it? Yeah, that's right. The unemployment rate at a two-year high. Um, last time it was 4.1% was uh, January of, of 2021. The expectation is that the unemployment rate is going to trend higher across the year. The Reserve Bank currently expects the unemployment rate will reach around 4.3% by year end. But I think it's worth noting that the, the current unemployment rate is actually tracking a little bit ahead of schedule in, in terms of what the RBA anticipated. So there's also the possibility that the, maybe the increase in unemployment is going to be larger than the RBA expects. Would there be seasonal factors involved in that? Because a large number of workers would have started a new job after the holidays. Yeah, there have been some changing seasonal hiring patterns, which I think has impacted the labour force figures over the, the past few months. It's impacted November, December, and, and likely January as well. And it does seem as though there was a higher than normal number of people who technically have jobs but haven't started those jobs yet. And so that could potentially influence the, the February figures. So if that was the case, we'd see a big boost in February, which would offset some of the weakness that we saw in January. Yeah, it's, it's absolutely true that there has been some seasonal factors, which has maybe made the labour market figures a little bit more difficult to interpret than they traditionally have been. Uh, what about hours worked? Yeah, so it was down 2.5%. And again, seasonal factors could have contributed to this. So what we have noted in the past couple of years, uh, following the, the pandemic lockdown period, was that a larger number of people than usual have been taking holidays during 
January period. So they're, they're on leave. And what that is doing is it's pushing down hours worked, um, which is contributing to, to that factor. Now, nevertheless, we take a step back and look at what hours worked have been doing since the middle of last year. The answer is not a lot. There hasn't been much movement in hours worked at all, which is a, a pretty weak outcome given that employment has been rising throughout that period. So we're not seeing the same movement on the hours side that we've been seeing on the employment side. Uh, my int interpretation of that is that uh, firms are uh, managing their workforce without significantly cutting their headcount. Well, it's certainly a possibility, yes. That they could be, you know, for, for workers who have more flexible um, schedules, they could be working a little less than they, they were traditionally. I mean, full-time workers tend to be a little bit more fixed in, in terms of the hours that they work, but there's certainly lots of flexibility on the part-time side. There is also the, the fact that over the past 12 months, around two-thirds of employment growth has been in part-time employment. So the the quality of the, the jobs that have been created is not as high as it was in, in the past. So we might be seeing a lot of people um, enter the workforce and then maybe they're working 15, 20 hours a week rather than you know 35 to 40 hours a week. And that could also be playing, having some impact upon the, the hours work statistics. Now, if the Reserve Bank is expecting unemployment to go up to 4.3%, that's going to have an impact on wages, wouldn't it? Well, it is expected to. Um, now, an unemployment rate of 4.3% is still very low, very low by historical standards. There's only been a, a few years in the past half century where we've had an unemployment rate lower than that. Um, so we would still expect wage growth to be reasonably strong by historical standards. And of course, it's currently at 4%. It might go a little bit higher in the near term, but I'd expect it to, to settle um, well below that 4% rate, maybe down towards 3.5% um, at, at some point this year. So I still think that the wage growth is going to be reasonably strong this year. Uh, if, if if the unemployment rate remains, well, if the unemployment rate is at say 4.3% by year end. Uh, what impact would that have on the Reserve Bank? Well, certainly the, the recent data flow has um, suggested that monetary policy is having the intended impact upon the economy. We're seeing weakness on the household spending. Inflation is obviously coming down and faster than anticipated. And we, we are see la seeing labour market conditions ease. So all the things are sort of suggesting that there isn't going to be much need for the Reserve Bank to hike rates again. And in fact, a lot of people are beginning to talk about the possibility of rate cuts maybe in the second half of, of this year. There are still some issues that the Reserve Bank would, would have and they, they would like to see that change. Not, most notably is service sector inflation, which is still quite high. It's coming down, but it's still quite high. The Reserve Bank would like to see that come down a lot more um, this year to be comfortable that they can uh, consistently achieve that 2 to 3% uh, inflation target. And they'd also be worried about productivity um, because wages and productivity are, are connected to what inflation typically looks like. And, and right now, wage growth is very high at 4%. Labor productivity is terrible. It's been negative. It's been absolutely dreadful over the past couple of years. Um, which is meaning that, that essentially labour is, is more ex expensive and that's feeding through to higher inflation. So if the Reserve Bank wants to achieve that 2 to 3% target, they need to see lower service sector inflation. They need to see higher productivity to offset those big wage gains that we have seen. And if that doesn't eventuate, then it's going to be very hard for them to achieve the target. And then they begin to think about monetary policy a lot differently. 
you'd need productivity to go up to something like 1.5%, wouldn't you? Yes, and that's what the Reserve Bank current is currently, well, a little bit less. The Reserve Bank is forecasting a little bit less than that, 1.4% uh, this year down to around 1.2% over the, the next couple of years, which is the, the long-term um, average growth of productivity over you know the decade before the pandemic. That's what they think is going to happen. Uh, of course, productivity growth has been negative in the past couple of years. So we're nowhere near that. But the RBA is anticipating that some of the disruptions to business operations are going to diminish um, over the, the coming year. Um, so we're talking about... Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. You know, supply chain disruptions, global trade disruptions, um, Ukraine war, the impact that's having on fuel and electricity prices and, and all those sort of factors are going to become less important going forward. And that's going to trigger productivity growth returning to something that better resembles normal. It represents a considerable risk to the RBA's economic forecasts. Definitely one thing that could fall well short of their expectations. And if that occurs, then inflation is likely to be higher than the RBA expects and remain higher for longer. Well, Michelle Bullock in her first press conference after the RBA decision said the problem with inflation is it's got a four in front of it, which would mean you'd have to get inflation down to the low threes before the RBA moves and cuts rates. Yeah, well, I would think so. Um, but I, I do think we're we appear to be headed in that direction over the next six months based on what we've been seeing with the monthly inflation measure, which is sort of a bit of a leading indicator for the, the quarterly measure that we, we tend to rely on a little bit more. Um, that is suggesting that a unemployment rate in the mid 3% range is probably likely by mid-year, maybe getting down to 3% or maybe even slightly lower by the end of the year. Now, obviously, there's a ton of uncertainty around that. There's, there's a lot of things that are, are going to change over the course of this year. But it does appear as though it is possible. You know, we can see light at the end of the tunnel in terms of inflation, but we need a few things to happen. And that productivity side of things is, is definitely one part of that equation, as of course is, is wages as well. I would hazard a guess that with a lot of Australian companies adopting AI, that could boost productivity as well. Potentially. Yeah, potentially. I mean, there's obviously a lot of uncertainty around AI and how we're going to use it and the impact it's going to have on jobs. And there's a lot of fear out there as well. But the fact that a lot of Australian jobs are exposed to generative AI tools such as ChatGPT potentially means that they can use these tools in a way to boost productivity. So these tools do appear to have the capacity to fundamentally change the nature of work in, in Australia. Uh, but it's probably not going to happen overnight, obviously. This is you know, sort of medium, long-term outlook, but it could certainly be productivity enhancing if it is used in the correct way. So we're talking about months, if not years. 
Well, I would say years more so than than months. I mean, we are seeing businesses dip their toes in the water. They're exploring what these tools can do. But at, at the moment, certainly when I look at on in when I look at Indeed and how often these sort of tools are mentioned in job descriptions, it's not happening that often, which suggests that these jobs are not necessarily widespread just yet. But we certainly expect that usage within Australian businesses is going to increase quite rapidly over the next couple of years. Well, Callum, thank you very much for your time again. Thank you, Leon. So what's happening in the news? An ANZ has won its $4.9 billion bid for Suncor's banking arm on appeal, overturning regulatory concerns about the takeover squashing competition in the banking sector. The decision to allow the takeover was handed down on Tuesday morning by the Australian Competition Tribunal. It marks the largest merger deal in banking since the global financial crisis triggered the purchases of smaller banks by big four lenders, Westpac and Commonwealth Bank. The decision means Melbourne-based ANZ, one of Australia's big four banks, will boost its push into home loans by absorbing Brisbane-based Suncor's middle-ranked banking arm, which is about $67 billion in loans. Suncor will now continue as an insurer, is already one of Australia's two biggest insurers of cars and homes under brands such as Dable AMI or GIO. The cash from ANZ will also potentially result in money flowing back to investors as special dividends or share buybacks. But the takeover could also raise some concerns from customers wary about a big four bank taking over smaller institutions and stoke concerns about whether Australian banking is too concentrated. And migrants coming to Australia boost productivity and lift the wages of all locals, especially those with fewer skills or less education. International research into the nation's immigration intake has revealed. Amid a growing debate about immigration after a record number of people entered the country over the past 12 months, four separate research papers by the OECD show parts of Australia with higher flows of migrants gain an economic benefit of almost $1,500 a person. The new OECD research based on the payroll records of 27 million people collated between 2011 and 2018, during which a net 1.7 million migrants moved into Australia, found those parts of the country with higher migrant numbers tended to have higher productivity levels. That enhanced productivity was driven in part by the migrants moving into those regions. The OECD found almost 60% of Australia's migrants had tertiary education compared to about 40% of the local-born population. Migrants to Australia had much higher levels of tertiary education than those in other countries. The organisation's researchers found that on average, a one percentage point higher share of migrants were associated with high productivity, worth $1,490 per person. A one percentage point increase in annual migrant numbers boosts the employment levels of locally born Australians by 0.53%. And the ABC's Four Corners has revealed that leaked emails show Coles has been profiting from higher prices at the checkout, despite repeated assurances from the supermarket giant that it is doing everything in its power to keep grocery bills down. The emails reveal for the first time the tactics Coles has employed with suppliers seeking a price increase and how it has taken advantage of inflation. Four Corners also revealed that Woolworths has used similar tactics to increase its profits over the last 18 months. Australia has a highly concentrated supermarket sector where Coles and Woolworths control 65% of the grocery market. The leaked emails show how supermarkets can exploit this lack of competition to push around suppliers, leading to higher grocery bills. The emails showed Coles received a one-off payment from a multinational supplier for allowing a price increase, then passed on this cost to customers. The price increase of around 5%
which the supply sought to cover its rising costs, was initially dismissed by the Coles buyer based on customer needs and the competitive environment. Four Corners also revealed that about 18 months ago, Woolworths began trying to increase its own profit margins using economy-wide inflation as cover. Woolworths asked to share in any price increases granted to its suppliers. It would do this by requesting its supplier to pay some of this price increase back to Woolworths. That meant consumers ended up paying more. Suppliers did not get the full price increase, but Woolworths increased its profit margins. Woolworths buys a product at $2 and sells it for $3. It gets a 33% gross profit margins. Normally, if a supplier got its increase, Woolworths buys for $2.20 and sells for $3.30. Woolworths keeps its 33% margin. Everyone gets the same amount of the pie. But if Woolworths buys at $2.10 and sells for $3.30, it increases its margins to 36.4%. Shoppers pay more, but Woolworths passes on a smaller share of that to suppliers. Woolworths Chief Executive Bram Banducci, who retired from the supermarket giant this week after 13 years with Woolworths, including eight and a half years as CEO, said the company did not employ these tactics. Woolworths' latest annual report shows that last financial year, its pre-tax Profit margins from selling groceries rose from 5.3% to 6%. That increase was worth an extra $318 million in profit last year alone. At the same time, its cost of doing business was flat. Mr Banducci denied this was evidence of price gouging. Star Entertainment is on the verge of losing a lucrative licence to operate one of two Sydney casinos after the New South Wales regulator launched an independent inquiry into whether the company had fixed major cultural failures. Adam Bell SC, the Sydney barrister who conducted an early inquiry into Star's Sydney Casino, had been appointed to run the review, a decision that blindsided the company's executive when it was announced on Monday morning. Mr Bell's 2022 report found Star was unsuitable to hold its licence, describing its operations as a case study of unethical conduct and cultural failure that may have evaded taxes and facilitated $900 million of banned gambling transactions. Over four months, his inquiry reveals Star hid criminal junket operator Sun City's illegal cash cage and allowed it to operate a secret gambling room. Star and its chief executive, Robbie Cook, did not respond except to note the review, which will run in private and conclude in May. The first Bell Review, along with a similar investigation in Queensland, where Star operates casinos in Brisbane and the Gold Coast, led to the resignation of key figures, including the company's chief executive, Matt Beckier. Star's market capitalization has shrunk by more than $2.4 billion to $1.6 billion since the start of the first Bell Inquiry, and shares were suspended from trade on Monday. Still, the Sydney casino has been lucrative, with gaming revenues of $838.9 million last year. The new review will consider whether Star has enough money to operate properly, as well as its management, reporting lines and compliance, with internal controls. The regulator said it was concerned about how much of a remedial action was due to the actions of a state-appointed special manager rather than being driven by the company. The Bell Inquiry went into extensive details about the cultural failings of the company. It described the culture as one which condoned unethical conduct, prioritised business goals over compliance objectives, courted risk and discouraged bad news. In his report, Mr Bell noted areas that needed investigation, including continuation and promotion of staff who are part of the culture that enable misconduct. The cultural dysfunction had significant adverse consequences for staff's capacity to withstand the risks of criminal infiltration and money laundering, he wrote. The financial crime watchdog is also suing Star, alleging it allowed 117 
high-risk VIP patrons to churn billions of dollars of dirty cash through its casinos for years. Sun City, the Macau-headquartered junket operator alone, turned over $15.5 billion and players recorded a total loss of more than $150 million between December 2016 and September 2020, the Australian Transaction Reports and Analysis Centre alleged in filings with the Federal Court. And Seven Group, controlled by billionaire Kerry Stokes and his family, wants to buy all of Boral and has made an offer for the remaining 28.4% it does not currently control in a bid to bring the concrete and asphalt company inside the diversified industrial. Seven Group already owns Coates Hire Business, West Track Mining Trucks and Machinery, and 30% of Oil and Gas Group Beach Energy. It holds 71.6% of Boral after the 2021 takeover attempt. Boral has made a strong turnaround under Chief Executive Vic Bansal, hired by the Stokes family in late 2022. Ryan Stokes, son of Kerry Stokes, is the chairman of Boral and the chief executive of Seven. The Stokes family, since taking control in 2021, heavily influenced a shift in strategy for Boral to become an Australia-focused business, exiting North America, where it sold off $4 billion in assets. The integration of Boral as a 100% owned business is a natural evolution for Seven Group, Ryan Stokes said on Monday, describing its offer as best and final. It will not pay more than $6.25 for Boral shares for at least 12 months. Seven Group Chairman Terry Davis said its offer was attractive because it would facilitate dividends via the equity component. Boral has not paid a dividend for two years, and through a combination of limited franking credits and a significant investment program, is unlikely to pay dividends for some time, Mr Davis said. The letter from Mr Davis also outlined Seven's intentions to push for more board representation of Boral in line with its existing 71.6% stake and to steer the strategy further towards reinvesting free cash flow into long-term growth strategies such as upgrading its transport fleet and replacing short-life quarries. That would further constrict any plans by Boral to pay dividends. Boral urged shareholders to take no action. The Independent Board Committee notes the continued strong performance of the Boral business and the management team, the statement said. And the profit reporting season continues. Woolworths posted a massive loss of $781 million after the company bulked $1.6 billion New Zealand dollars, that's $1.5 billion Aussie, write down in the value of its New Zealand grocery business and a $209 million reduction in the value of a stake in ASIC's listed alcohol and hotel spin-off endeavour. But excluding those one-offs, Woolworths announced a 2.5% rise in half-year profit to $929 million. That was based on a 4.4% increase in revenue compared to the same period a year earlier. BHP's US $6.6 billion, that's $20.1 billion Aussie underlying profit crash to just US $927 million. Westpac reported net profit of $1.5 billion, down 6%. National Australia Bank's cash earnings dived 16.9% in the December quarter to $1.8 billion. Bendigo and Adelaide Bank's net profit was up 13.8% to $282.3 million. Cochlear reported its underlying net profit was up 35% to $191.8 million. A2 Milk Company's profit rose 15.6% to $85.3 million New Zealand dollars. Lendless's pre-tax loss widened to $173 million from $122 million. Reliance Worldwide posted a 23.4% slump in its interim profit to US $51.1 million, that's $78 million Aussie. Australia's largest steel manufacturer, Blue Soap Steel, reported a net profit of $439 million for the six months to December 31, down $160 million on a year earlier. 
Ampol reported a 25% drop in statutory profit to $549.1 million in the 12 months of December, down from $795.9 million in the previous year. However, Ampol's replacement cost operating profit, the company's preferred metric, which removes the rise and fall in oil prices, rose 1.1% to $740.1 million. ASX-listed landlord and fund manager GPT Group recorded a full-year 2023 statutory loss of $240 million. The construction and product supplier GWA Group posted total impact from ordinary activities 8.9% to $23.2 million Aussie. Newix has reported a first-half loss of $4.8 million. Australian Packaging Manufacturers Aurora's statutory impact amounted to $68.2 million, down $39.9 million. Investment platform Hub24 reported a 39% increase in statutory net profit after tax to $21.5 million in the first half of 2024. Baby Bunting's first net profit was flat in the first half at $2.7 million. Engineering company Monodelphus Group reported a 3.2% increase in net profit to $30.1 million. Sonic Healthcare reported a 47% slump in half-year net profit to $202 million. Tech company Megaport's net profit was $4.4 million from a $13.5 million loss a year ago. Judo Bank reported a profit before tax of $67 million for the first half of 2024, up 24% from the prior half-year. Metals recycling company Sims reported $65.8 million in MPAT, and underlying earnings dropped 86% to $13.4 million. Insurance group AUB Group reported $53.1 million in net profit after tax in the first half of 2024, from a loss of $2.2 million a year earlier. Ansel's profit before interest and tax slid 14.5% to US $78.2 million. Financial services firm NetWealth posted a 28.3% profit increase in the first half of 2024 compared to the previous corresponding period, posting a profit of $39.3 million. Car accessory maker ARB posted a 21% increase in reported profit before tax to $71 million in the first half of 2024. Coal miner Coronado Global Resources reported an 80% drop in net income in the first half of 2024 to $156 million. Buy now, pay later operator Hum Group ended the first half of FY24 with cash profit after tax $28.1 million, down $10.4 million on the corresponding period of FY23. Travel agency Corporate Travel Management's net profit was recorded at $57.9 million. Domino's Pizza Enterprises' net profit fell by 9.2% to $58 million in the six months ended December 31. Software provider WiseTech posted a 5% increase in statutory net profit to $118.2 million. Westfield owner and operator Centre has recorded a 41.8% drop in its annual statutory profit to $174.9 million. Oil and gas giant Hantos posted a 42% dip in underlying net profit to US $1.423 billion, that's $2.2 billion Aussie, for the year to December 31. Stockland posted a half-year profit of $102 million. Property fund manager Charter Hall has swung to a $190 million loss in 2024 first half. The Lottery Corporation has boosted profit by more than 26% to $217.4 million. Ventia Services' annual net profits slipped just under 1% to $189.8 million. Iluka Resources reported a net profit of $342.6 million for the 12 months through December, down 41% from $599 million a year earlier. 
Iris has reported statutory impact loss of $137 million in FY23, compared to a profit of $52.7 million in FY22. National Storage REI posted an IFRS profit after tax of $79.2 million. Peter Warren Automotive posted a profit before tax of $34.4 million. Smart Group Corporation posted an impact of $63.2 million, up 3%. Viva Energy posted a net profit after tax of $318.2 million, up 46.7%. And that's it for this week. And next week, I'll be talking to Richard Kirkman, the CEO of Viola. Research undertaken by Viola, the nation's leader in ecological transformation, found that climate distress and eco-anxiety have become the norm in Australia, with the majority of Aussies playing emphasis on the role that businesses must play in addressing these issues. And I'll be talking to AMP Capital Chief Economist Shane Oliver about the profit reporting season. For the most exclusive access to leading economists and business leaders from around the world, subscribe to Talking Business from our website, leongetler.com. If you like Talking Business, please leave us a review with Apple Podcasts. Thank you in advance. In the meantime, catch me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn and YouTube. And if you want, leave a comment. If you want to contact me, email me at leonatleongetler.com. I answer all emails. Wishing you all a safe and healthy week and looking forward to bringing you Talking Business next week. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.